You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years, and he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried at Kamon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook Yahweh and did not serve him. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel, who were beyond the Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And Yahweh said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to Yahweh, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served Yahweh, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah, and the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time the Ammonites made war against Israel, And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and Yahweh gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Yahweh will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. 
So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before Yahweh at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not listen. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And Yahweh the God of Israel gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then Yahweh the God of Israel dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that Yahweh, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon three hundred years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. Yahweh the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And Yahweh gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child besides her. He had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that Yahweh has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. 
Leave me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 707 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, September 7th, 2023, and that's kind of fun. It is the 7th day of September, and this is also episode 707. What does that mean? I couldn't tell you. But I just read for you Judges chapter 10 and 11 in the Old Testament, and These two chapters center quite a lot on a character named Jephthah. Before I say anything about Jephthah, let's comment on two judges who there's not a lot about. They get a quick paragraph, and then we see that there was a sizable term of office, so to speak. This guy named Tola saves Israel, and he judges for 23 years. After him... There's a guy named Jer, and he judges Israel 22 years. And what's this weird business of him having 30 sons on 30 donkeys who had 30 cities? What's that about? Well, it doesn't say. It just moves right on. There's this quirky little detail, and then off to Jephthah. And I find that fascinating. I really do. It doesn't mean you build your theology around it, but it is worth noting It's in the scriptures. Why is it in the scriptures? I don't know. I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's in there. And so we come across passages like this, and at least one thing we can glean is that it was worthwhile that these guys, as little as is said about them, judged Israel, saved Israel, in some sense, kept the peace in Israel for combined 45 years. 45 years is not forever. And we see immediately after Jer, the second of the two, passes on that the people of Israel go worshiping other gods and they again do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. But then here's why I bring that up and here's why it stands out to me because I hear quite a lot of pessimism, quite a lot of negativity, quite a lot of, yeah, it's just what it is in our country right now. If you talk about problems that are present either locally or statewide or nationally or internationally that are in the news, 
very often the response you'll get is, yeah, that's a thing. And if it is a real problem, very often the kind of response you get is, I think we're toast and nothing can be done about it. And ultimately, and I hear this again and again, we don't see the United States of America in the book of Revelation. And so if these are the end times, we're probably going to have our country just completely obliterated, wiped off the map. Maybe that's the case, right? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe our country is going to be completely wiped off the map. And then there will be the end times. Then there will be the apocalypse and Armageddon and the return of Christ, our Savior, his second coming and the end of history. But then, wait a second, not so fast. You don't know the day or the hour in which the Son of Man will return. You don't know the day or the hour. Only the Father knows, Jesus said. It's not for you to know. We're given some descriptions. We're given some predictions. We're given some promises. We're given some warnings. We're told here are some things that are going to be typical at that time, but we're not told when it's going to be. And what if it's not for 10 years? What if it's not for 100 years? What if it's not for 1,000 years? You say, oh, I don't think it'll be 1,000 years. I don't know that it's going to be 100 years. I I don't think so. Things are pretty bad right now. Maybe 10 years. I, I don't know. But you don't know. That's just it, right? You don't know. I don't know. And here at the beginning of Judges chapter 10, we have two judges, one named Tola, the other named Jair. And oh, by the way, they're called judges. And isn't that interesting? They're not kings, but they have authority. They have a position of prominence. They are keeping the peace and they're not just judging, it would seem, foreigners. They're also keeping the peace domestically within Israel. But we have these two judges who combined were presiding over a relatively peaceful time in Israel for 45 years. And I propose to you that if the Lord would answer our prayers, asking for deliverance for our country, asking for collective repentance and revival, and if said deliverance, if such a peace could be granted to us, of course it would have to accompany a heart change and we would also have to put away our false gods. But supposing that were to happen and the peace were to last for 23 years or 22 years or a combined total of 45 years, why would that not be a value to you? Shouldn't that be a value? If it was pleasing in the sight of God to give 45 years to Israel here by Tola and Jer after him being judges in Israel, then why do we think it sounds so spiritual that we say it, we say these kinds of things or we nod soberly when other people say them, that, yeah, you shouldn't put you, you shouldn't put so much stock in who's going to be the leader over this or that body of our people. Yeah, don't put so much stock in it. Just trust in God. Well, yeah, trust in God, but also it would be good for you to be not so apathetic. Maybe part of the reason we're under judgment is because there's such indifference and we've spiritualized indifference. Maybe it should be a bigger priority than it is, that we would have good leadership and that we would want good leadership. And maybe we are not the remnant if we're indifferent about whether we have faithful men who hate bribes in positions of authority. Maybe we are not the remnant 
when we're indifferent, maybe we are being lawless. Maybe we're being disobedient. If we're not calling our countrymen to repentance, calling one another to repentance for having forgotten God, for having turned away from God, for having neglected obedience, and we say, ah, yes, but we offer these sacrifices. And how do we measure very often? Based on who sacrifices the most of their money, so to speak, after a fashion, with tithes and offerings, and who sacrifices the most of their time. But wait, is it enough to know that you have given your time and given your money? Don't we also need to know whether you're being obedient? God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. And if obedience led to 20 years, 45 years of peace, and if that were to please God, shouldn't we welcome that? Shouldn't we be glad about it? Speaking of sacrifice, Jephthah gets the lion's share of attention in Judges chapter 10 and 11 when the people of Israel again do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. They serve the Baals, that is the Lord's, lowercase l, and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, pretty much any and all gods they can get their hands on and devote themselves to all of them, all the gods, all the gods of all the nations that they can think of. They're going to worship those gods, any gods other than Yahweh. And so God gives, and it says sold, but it means that God gave Israel up. So you guys give up on God, then maybe God gives up on you too, right back. If there is a blessing for a nation and Righteousness exalts any nation. Wickedness is a reproach to any people. And this people is no exception. This people being wicked, God hands them over to the Philistines to do with them what the Philistines will. And also the Amorites, it says. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So we've got a fight brewing, and Israel cries out, the people, it says, cry out to Yahweh, saying, we have sinned against you. Yeah, no kidding. You think? Because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, these are two separate and distinct actions. The one is forsaking God, which is to say, they became apathetic and indifferent. Yeah, they're intrigued by Yahweh, perhaps, still. But they're not invested. They're not obedient. They don't serve him. They don't love him. They don't revere him. In fact, they kind of just forget about him. Or they have. And now they're remembering him. Now certain things are coming back to their recollection. And they cry out to him. And God says, basically, you have forsaken me. You have served other gods. I don't think I will save you. No. Maybe I won't this time. Therefore, I will save you no more. Verse 13. Go cry out to the gods you've chosen. See if they'll answer. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Verse 14. And the people of Israel persist. We have sinned. And they admit, they agree, we have sinned. You're right. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then, what do they do? Only then do they put away the foreign gods that were among them and served 
Yahweh, what's curious is they're crying out to God and they haven't put away their idols. They're crying out to God all the while. They're keeping this false worship, this idolatry in the back pocket. And God's not impressed by that. God knows. It's not lost on him. What folly that they would think God doesn't observe that. Hey, what are you hiding behind your back? Nothing. It would be amusing, except that it's very unfortunate. And there are real consequences for this kind of sin and folly, very serious consequences, which they are suffering for 18 years. They had peace for 45 through Tola and Jer, and then 18 years. And then almost two decades of being oppressed. Why? Because they were disobedient. There's oppression, and you should understand that the oppression is closely related to indifference, forsaking, ambivalence, pretty much the opposite of reverence. So then we get this guy, Jephthah. Jephthah is a curious and tragic character in the book of Judges. Jephthah, it says, was a mighty warrior. So this guy's renowned for his fighting ability. He's got a reputation that precedes him. There's just one problem, and that problem is who his mother was. Because of who his mother was, he is discounted. And as a matter of fact, he's been expelled. He was thrown out. Because of who his mother was, he was not welcomed by his half-brothers, who it would seem probably were legitimate sons of their father. We're not talking here half-brother by a concubine. We're not talking half-brother here by just some gal, some woman in the community. Jephthah, it says in Judges, was the son of a prostitute. Now, what's curious about that is Jephthah being the son of a prostitute and being even in his father's household that he would be thrown out presents an interesting context wherein Jephthah's father got a prostitute pregnant, you know how, and then finding out that she was pregnant apparently took her into his household. And it would seem that this caused, as one might expect, some conflict. Jephthah, it would seem, has to have been raised in his father's household for him to be there for his half-brothers to drive him out. So he's driven out, and he goes and lives in the land of Tob, and it says worthless fellows collected around him, which is to say he didn't have good connections. He had the worst sort, losers, right? He's surrounded by losers. But then how was he treated? He was treated like a loser. Why? Because his mother was a prostitute. Now, this is a curious character sketch in the context of Israel having forsaken God, worshipped all these false gods, even worshipping all the gods of the nations and forgetting about Yahweh God, there is still some sense, even among the pagans, that the son of a prostitute does not get as much honor as legitimate sons, that a man gets by his wife or his wives. This Jephthah, interestingly, is exactly who God is going to use to deliver Israel. And that probably galls them. Just like his brothers said, no, get out of here. You will not have an inheritance in our father's house. 
so also the broader nation, if they still harbor quite a lot of self-esteem, a high view of themselves, a lot of pride, if they're still puffed up, even despite their lacking any justification for thinking so highly of themselves, it seems to me God using Jephthah is part of what will humble them. Oh yeah, sure, I guess I'll save you this time, maybe, by Jephthah fighting for you. And oh, by the way, he's going to negotiate with you to be your leader. If he does, by my power, deliver you from your enemies, he's going to be your head. So the one that you threw out, the one you exiled, the one you banished, the one you were rude to and disrespected, even though apparently your father wanted to do at least something of an honorable thing, it would seem, in making sure that a son of his, even an illegitimate son, was cared for, brought up in his household. No, you said, out. Get out. We are not going to live peaceably with you. We are not going to share with you. Get out. Yeah, that guy, he's going to be head over you. He's going to be in charge. But things must be pretty bad in Israel because... They agree. They say, fine, okay, let it be as you say. And so he begins to head up the effort to fight and to deliver this people Israel. And he starts up this exchange. And this is a fascinating case study in negotiation. There's this back and forth. And it's almost like if you think of a James Bond film, or some superhero flicks, or what have you. It's like when the protagonist is taunting back and forth before the actual fight. They know that it's coming. You know, as the audience, it's coming. A fight's coming. But they're taunting back and forth a little bit, and there's this banter. And what are they doing? They're jockeying for position, and they're testing one another to see what is your level of intelligence, How shrewd are you? How much are you aware of where we find ourselves? And they're presenting counter-narratives. In some sense, they're explaining why it is that they are going to fight or why the other person shouldn't fight. And this is something of a threat display, but it's not a threat display necessarily in the way some brute beast would issue a threat display. This is a kind of high-level threat display, basically getting at the moral cause or the just cause one would have for fighting. You have the claim of this king, basically, that you are living on stolen land. It's our land. We want it back. Give it back to us peaceably, which is to say, don't fight. I have the righteous cause. I have the just cause, but it's a lie. If it's predicated on a lie, then you shouldn't give the land back. And actually the other person should apologize for having lied. The thing you're saying is not true. You're making a false accusation against my people. And it's interesting. Jephthah says, you're coming against me. He's speaking for Israel here. You're coming against me. Why do you come against me? Why do you want trouble? You should stop. You should not come against me, actually. You should just go back to where you came from. Leave us alone. And we won't have any trouble. And of course, that's not what is going to happen. That's not what happens. But what's interesting, too, is embedded in this, it's not just some dueling rhetoric about whether this is stolen land. There is that. But 
there's a higher level dispute as to who gave this land to Israel. It was God. And if God gave the land to Israel, how about you have your God take it? Wow. What a taunt, right? No, no. Our God gave this land to us. How about you see if your God is strong enough to take it away? And that, my friends, that is why it would be really good for us to become reacquainted with the Old Testament. Not that everything is a one-to-one ratio. What we read in the Old Testament about what God's people are expected to be about and who they're expected to be, what they're supposed to be doing. I'll just head that right off at the pass because that's a common excuse that's made for us not reading the Old Testament, not studying it, not talking about it in depth. But God is God. God, being unchanging and unchangeable, has the character we see demonstrated in, yes, context, but in the Old Testament. And so you should pay attention to the context of the Old Testament to understand something of the character of God now and forevermore. Because even though we might not be Israel, and we're not, you and I might not be Jephthah or anyone else here in the story per se. There are types of people. and So you can get wisdom, understanding people. If you find a lot of serpents in the Old Testament, and you do, starting in Genesis, very early on, the first few Chapters. If you find a lot of serpents of various kinds in the Old Testament, you could be wise as serpents and understand the nature of serpents, all the while being harmless as a dove. And that would be obedient of you. That's what Jesus commands us. But recognize all the while that not everything that is described in the Old Testament as being done and being said by the people God uses is exemplary in a good way. Say, for instance, Jephthah making a hasty vow that he's going to offer up as a sacrifice his own whatever, right? Whatever it is that comes out to greet him. And what did he expect was going to come out of his front door when he came home from the battle? It was a foolish thing to vow. And yet, is God pleased that he followed through with it? I would say definitively no, because God says explicitly, expressly in the law, which he should have studied, he should have known, they should have been teaching it, they should have been meditating on it as his people. Israel should have been pondering it day and night. They would have been blessed if they would have studied it diligently, applied it here. One, it's a sin to make a hasty vow, but for another thing, there is a way to be forgiven for making a hasty vow, a rash oath. That was his sin, But then there was a certain pride and folly inherent and central to his following through with it. He sacrifices his own daughter. He kills his own daughter and offers her as a burnt sacrifice to God. God did not want that. In fact, God expressly said, do not offer your sons or your daughters in the fire to me. Like the nations I am driving out before you offer their sons and their daughters to their false gods. I don't want that. That's an abomination to me. That's why I'm driving them out. And what does Jephthah do? He considers his commitment to doing this thing apparently as all he needs to know. All he needs to know is that he said he would do this thing and now he's done it. And he's a man of his word after all. He's also a murderer. He killed his own daughter. He murdered his daughter who was innocent. 
She was innocent. And once again, the passage that comes to mind is that God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. If Jephthah would have obeyed the word of the Lord to not offer up his son or his daughter in the fire to God, that would have been better. God would have preferred that. If Jephthah would have confessed his sin in making a rash oath, making a hasty vow, if he would have repented of it, made atonement for it, God would have preferred that. Who was Jephthah honoring himself or God? Here, he was honoring himself. Wow. Look at how holy Jephthah is. He said he would do this thing, and he was even willing to offer his own daughter as a sacrifice to Yahweh. Shameful. This is a shameful and tragic error. But the practical application piece of it, because we can't go back in time, we can't jump in a time machine and talk Jephthah out of it. And even if we did have a time machine, we couldn't necessarily talk him out of it. The closest thing we can get to having good come from this is when we understand if we set things up in such a way, that is not how God said to set it up. And then we learn that, you know what? We were a little hasty there. We got a little ahead of ourselves. God would be more pleased by our just admitting that we made a mistake. We spoke out of turn. We didn't know what we were talking about. And we're sorry about that. We're sorry, Lord, that we said what we didn't understand. Please forgive us. If we would confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we have no sin or we say we have no sin, well, then we make God out to be a liar. And which is more offensive to God, that we would make him out to be a liar or that we would admit, you know what? We didn't know what we were talking about there. We're sorry. It seemed good to us, but that comes up again and again in Judges. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. It seems good. There's a way that seems right to a man. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, but then what does it also say again and again in the book of Judges? The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And who should you care more about when it comes to assessing the goodness, the virtue, the truth of your behaviors, your attitudes, your statements, your positions, your relationships, your priorities? Who's eyes should you care more about, your own or God's? I'm going to go with God on this one. In fact, as a general rule, we should go with God on all of the above, and that would be better. And it would be better for us to admit when we have erred, but then are we any less stiff-necked than Jephthah? We would rather our own sons and daughters, in all too many cases, be offered up as sacrifices. Oh, yes, well, that, that proves our devotion to God. We will offer our own children as sacrifices to Yahweh. Very impressive to other people who are ignorant and flattered by that kind of nonsense. God didn't call you to that. That was your idea. You honored yourself. Take care. Don't do that. Learn from Jephthah's mistake. Speaking of Jephthah's mistake, I'm going to play for you a clip from Table Talk. Table Talk magazine, an outlet of Ligonier Ministries. Here is Michael Reeves, Dr. Michael Reeves, answering the question, what is the fear of the Lord? What does it mean for Christians to fear the Lord biblically? It's about a two-minute audio clip. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. 
In Isaiah 11, we see an extraordinary passage where the Spirit of the Lord anoints the Messiah, and we're told that the spirit of the fear of the Lord will be on him, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And that shows us what it means for believers to fear the Lord, because we're shown there that Christ himself has a delight in fearing the Lord. So the fear of the Lord that Christians are to have is a sharing in Christ's own fear of the Lord. And you see in the fact that it's Christ's fear of the Lord that the fear of the Lord does not mean we are afraid that we want to run away from God, quite the opposite. The fear of the Lord that Christ has, that he shares with believers, is a trembling wonder that falls down facing toward God, not running from, but drawn to him in adoration and wonder and trembling. So in Psalm 2, we read, rejoice and tremble. The, the right reaction to knowing the living God is a rejoicing, trembling. The fear of the Lord is how we love God, our great and merciful God, as God. Okay, so what's being said here? A couple of things, one that I'm not sure I'm sold on, but a few that I would readily agree with. Consider Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 to 3. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Here we have a prophecy of Messiah but what's not said is necessarily that he's going to have the fear of the Lord in the sense that we would have the fear of the Lord. It's not exactly said. I don't know if I'm sold on the idea of Jesus being filled with the fear of the Lord himself, but what would it mean for him to delight in the fear of the Lord when he is God, when Jesus is the incarnate son of God and he delights in the fear of Yahweh that's the same thing as saying the pre-incarnate God the Son has a delight in the fear of Yahweh. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have a delight in the fear of Yahweh. And you're going to see that lived out. You're going to see that made flesh and fleshed out, really, in the person of Jesus. I'm not so sure that Jesus had the fear of the Lord the way that we would have the fear of the Lord because he knew no sin. He did not have a sinful nature. We have a sinful nature he didn't. So I'll just take that one with a grain of salt. But where Dr. Reeves says here that there's such a thing as a delight in the fear of Yahweh, we should understand that God is pleased if we have an appropriate reverence that coincides with a recognition that we live in a broken world that's affected by sin. It's broken by man's sin coming in and bringing death with it to this creation. There's an appropriateness to recognizing 
that God is holy and righteous and that we are in possession of a sinful nature, living in a broken creation that's affected by the sin of man. And just that right there, right? That right there, having a fear of Yahweh, even just Messiah having a delight in the fear of Yahweh is quite something. For those who think that in the New Testament, Jesus does not have this emphasis on us fearing God like we find in the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament God and New Testament God is nice. He doesn't worry about that anymore because Jesus, well, wait a second, wait a second. You're introducing all kinds of potential bad doctrine, bad understanding of who God is. Take care. But then go back to Jephthah. Go back to Jephthah in Judges chapter 10 and recognize that on the one hand, his making this rash oath and then following through on it when he shouldn't have could be taken by some people as proof that he really fears God. Wow. And he promises something to God. He really carries through with it, even at the utmost cost to him of his daughter, his only daughter, his only child, but not so fast. If he really feared God, he would obey God and he would keep his commandments. His commandment, for instance, being do not offer your sons and daughters in the fire to me in worship to me like the nations I'm driving out before you. This is why I'm driving them out before you offered their sons and their daughters to the gods of those nations. If Jephthah really wanted to demonstrate that he feared God, he would have kept God's commandments. That's the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments. Jephthah didn't do that. In fact, you could say he kept his own commandment. He made up an arbitrary rule for himself that he would do this thing if God gave him the victory. And then what did he do? He did exactly what he said he was going to do, which is to say he counted his own word as more weighty, more important than the word of God with tragic consequences. And going a step farther, does Jephthah offering his daughter as a sacrifice to Yahweh indicate that he fears God? Or is this possibly an extension of his wanting others to fear him? He is a warrior of some renown, and they should see these other men, even of his father's people, even his brothers who forced him out, cast him out when he came of age. We're not going to share our father's inheritance with you. Get out of here. Does he want those folk in particular to fear him? Man, I don't want you ever trying something like this with me again. I don't know. That's speculative, I grant. But one of the ways in which the fear of the Lord can come into our equation, should come into our equation with our expression of Christian faith individually and corporately is we do not consider our own words, our own rules, our own structure, our own order, our own policies as the final authority, the final word. When we start to think that what we have committed to is more important, carries more weight than what God has commanded, and when we can't be reasoned with, we can't be encouraged to change our thinking, moderate our thinking, adjust our plans, our procedures, the way that we organize things, the way we order things, if we can't be persuaded to change the way that we're approaching things because, well, we said we were going to do this, and so that's what we have to do now, we're in a dangerous spot. We're in a very dangerous spot. That's, I think, the cautionary tale 
Jephthah is meant to illustrate for us when he offers up his daughter as a sacrifice. God didn't tell him to do that. In fact, God gave a blanket statement to all Israel, to all the Israelites, that he did not want to be worshipped that way. He did not want to be served that way. He would not be pleased. In fact, he regards that as an abomination. How then, when God regards that as an abomination, does someone talk themselves into doing it because God's going to be pleased by this, because I'm keeping my word? What you've done in that case is you've taken something which is a lower priority, but it is a priority to keep your word, to do what you say you're going to do. You've taken that lower priority and you've made it the highest priority over and above holistic obedience to what God says, don't do or it's an abomination. God never said, if you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it, that's an abomination. He never said that, but he did say, it's an abomination if you offer your son or your daughter in the fire to me. I reject that kind of worship. In our day, what this can look like is that various individuals, various organizations, churches and parachurch ministries and outlets, corporations, nonprofits that purport to be operating as Christians in a biblical way, they do things, they make their positions known, they take on ministries in such a way as to say, we are going to stick to our guns, we are going to do what we said we were going to do, and when challenged on a particular point, they won't budge. They won't move. They won't moderate. They won't reconsider. No, no, it's fine. Well, wait a second. How could it be fine if a brother or sister in Christ comes to you, perhaps was sent by God to you, with a reminder, it is written. It doesn't say, with regards to Jephthah, that anybody came to him and then he just said, yeah, get out of here. I don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. It doesn't say that. And so maybe that's as concerning as anything, is that in our day, very often, when nobody raises a concern, when nobody says, hey, wait a second, we're not doing this in an obedient way, in a faithful way, like we ought to. This thing we are doing is not good because God said to do X, Y, and Z, and we're doing one, two, three. It's not even in the alphabet what we're doing, much less what God said to do in these kinds of circumstances. What I have seen, and I say this as somebody who can be rather outspoken at times, you may have noticed. What I have observed is if I'm the first person and the only person to have brought up a point of concern, whether in churches or in ministry groups or just to other Christians in a casual conversation sort of way, if I'm the only one saying something, but I'm pointing to the scriptures and I'm saying, well, it is written and this is what God's word says, there is this tendency to say, well, I don't know, let me think about it. And and as soon as three or four have said, yes, we think this is a good idea and he's got a good point, or it does say that, if you start to assemble a consensus and you can point to the consensus, that actually very often carries more weight than saying it is written. And so one can imagine a scenario, and this is hypothetical, but a scenario in which someone does come to Jephthah and say, wait a second, God has expressly forbidden you to do this thing, and rather than you follow through on your rash oath, your hasty vow, you should repent. Someone comes to him, but it's only one person out of all Israel who knows he's going to do this thing, 
And he says, you know what? I don't hear anybody else saying what you're saying. I'm going to follow through with what I plan to do. And don't, don't torture me over this. This is hard, right? This is very hard for me to do. And don't you realize what I've been through? I mean, I've been through a lot. I've really served the Lord and I've done a lot for this people. And you should be more thankful. And you're being very disrespectful right now to bring up this concern, this objection. No, no, no. I I don't hear anybody else saying what you're saying. And so I'm just going to do what I said I was going to do. If that were in the text, what would we say? But then conversely, maybe this is part of what it means that Israel in the book of Judges is marked by there being no king in Israel. And so every man does what is right and knows it. Oh, nice. Nobody comes to a Jephthah and says, this thing you are about to do, this thing you are planning on doing is not good. Don't do it. Nobody comes to him. Isn't that more disturbing? Isn't that more concerning when nobody else is coming to Jephthah and saying, it is written, does nobody know that God said not to do this thing? Or do many care only about their own business? And they don't care whether Jephthah does this thing. They're not going to trouble themselves He's scary. He's intimidating. He has done quite a lot for Israel, you know. He has risked quite a lot. He could have just stayed out there with those worthless fellows. You know, he's he had a hard upbringing. His mom was a prostitute, you know. Yeah, let's just leave it. Leave it be. What happens, happens. God will have to speak to him. Let the Holy Spirit do that. See, these are the kinds of pseudo-spiritual things that we say to rationalize being passive and not speaking up and not engaging and not asking these hard questions, not being Bereans about things. On the one hand, we get very often, in my experience, encouragement, lightly delivered, lightly salted encouragement to be Bereans. But it's like the sodium free. Now with less now, now with less sodium, because somebody said that, oh, you know, too much sodium and you're going to have health issues. And then wait, they missed the memo that six months later, the corporate news media was saying, you actually need quite a lot more sodium than you're maybe getting. And it's this other thing that you aren't getting that is keeping your body from metabolizing this appropriately, disposing of waste products appropriately. And now it builds up. That's why you're unhealthy is because you don't have this other thing and your metabolism's way off kilter. You're eating these other things that are blocking the internal processes. They miss that. And so they just say, hey, Here's lightly salted encouragement to be Bereans about it. But, oh, wait, 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 wait. The guy who's actually going to do it and come to us and say, hey, it's written. We don't want that guy. No, 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 no. No, 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 that guy, he's always doing that. We don't need, we need, we need to find some other verses to encourage him to remember. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The people who aren't doing it, they're the ones we were trying to encourage to be Bereans so that when they be Bereans about things, they see that we're right. And we'll always make sure we lightly salt it lest they would come to us and say, hey, you know, that thing you said the other day, I'm not sure that's exactly what the biblical text says. And have you considered these other verses and these other chapters and these other accounts, which good hermeneutics, sound biblical study and understanding would necessitate we factor into the way that we read the one passage that you were talking about. But switching gears, let's talk about what's happening at the macro in the broader political discussion among conservatives, among Christians in many cases. Yes, we have the larger 
American culture that is debating what is conservatism, what is liberalism, what is progressivism, what does it mean to be moderate? Should we go with more of a third way moral equivalence and just say, nobody's perfect and shrug, but we also have in the church very often a debate about should we be theological conservatives or should we be amorphous? Should we just listen to whatever comes our way, whoever it's coming from, whatever organization, whatever outlet, listen to it, hear it out, give it equal weight. I want to talk about the broader discussion that's happening, the church notwithstanding, Christians notwithstanding, but then we're included. Christians are included, but this discussion is not limited to Christians. Andrew T. Walker published a piece July 18th over at World Magazine titled, True Conservatism is Not Mere Progressivism in Slow Motion. Here, I will credit J.P. Chavez with sending me not only this article, but also the previous link to the Table Talk magazine video and brief write-up about what does it mean for Christians to fear the Lord. When I talk about us raising our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, that's what I'm getting at is we need to, we should, we're called to. We're told to, we're commanded to. I think that's why, in part, JP sent me the piece about that. But he also sent this, true conservatism is not mere progressivism in slow motion. Some food for thought, something to consider. The subtitle for this essay by Andrew T. Walker says, freedom conservatism misses a crucial ingredient from the Buckley-Reagan recipe. And here we have a featured image of... William F. Buckley Jr. greeting Ronald Reagan and Sam Irvin after a debate in Columbia, South Carolina, 1978. Photo from the Associated Press by Lou Kraske. Andrew T. Walker writes, American conservatism has many roots, but the modern conservative movement traces at least part of its heritage to a 1960 gathering of conservatives and a manifesto of principles they adopted. The Sharon Statement became a hallmark summary of the most fundamental principles of conservatism. One of the most notable passages in the Sharon statement was its affirmation of eternal truths and to their ultimate grounding in God. Now, conservatives have always debated the essence of conservatism, and for good reason. As an intellectual project, conservatism insists that ideas matter, and not just in some abstract, platonic way. Conservatives understand that ideas must eventually be distilled and crystallized into workable policies and programs. But note this, central to conservatism has always been a belief in God. Take, for instance, Russell Kirk's summary of a central conservative axiom. Quote, belief in a transcendent order or body of natural law which rules society as well as conscience, political problems at bottom are religious and moral problems, end quote. The Sharon Statement mentions God as the first reality for its political principles. In contrast, consider the recent statement of freedom conservatism, a statement released last week that bills itself as an heir of the Sharon Statement. What is most striking is not what it states, but what it leaves out. I read the statement three times to assure myself that I was not overlooking an essential element of American conservatism, God, the notion of divine transcendence that gives existence and order to all things without God at the center of one's political worldview. There is no principled ground to furnish what political societies need above all else, an unchanging morality and standard upon which to establish the purpose of the society's organization in the first place. Apart from grounding morality in theism, justice, 
The essential justification for the political community is illusory. This is only as radical as the Declaration of Independence and its overtures to theism and natural law. Freedom conservatism asserts moral propositions without coherent moral foundations. Sure, many of those pillars are wonderful and would be happily embraced by almost all conservatives. However, planks of the statements such as liberty, freedom of conscience, and the pursuit of happiness are pillars denoting a moral ought. They cannot be elastic and unbounded to the point of the absurd. Does it include the liberty to kill one's baby, for example? But one would never know why any of these apparent conservative principles have any force to them apart from their mere assertion. Now, we'll just pause right there. The link for this larger essay will be available in the description for this podcast episode. You can go check it out, follow the link, read the whole thing for yourself. But let's just pause for a moment to consider how a lot of so-called conservatives are evolving on their position relative abortion, even with Roe v. Wade having been overturned by the Supreme Court last summer, you have a lot of conservatives apologizing and even many among American evangelical thought leaders, pastors, prominent Christian authors, prominent Christian celebrities saying, last summer, this is not a time to celebrate because we have fellow Americans who are very offended. They're very upset. They're very afraid. We don't want to celebrate Roe v. Wade being overturned because it would give the wrong impression. The optics are not good. Some of the debate right now among the contenders for the Republican nomination to be president in 2024, president of the United States, some of the debate right now is how do we walk that back, what the Supreme Court handed down in the way of a victory in overturning Roe versus Wade. This being sent back to the states, you have some, like myself, who say, if it's murder, then we should have a federal ban across the board on abortion. If it's murder. If it's not murder, well, then you just say, okay, we're going to have a, an eight-week ban, a 16-week ban. You can say, all right, it's legal up until this point, but it's arbitrary. It's arbitrary in a way that saying abortion is murder is not. Because when you say that it's murder, we already have an absolute command, an absolute prohibition that's universal. It's not federal. It's not state level. It's not community-based. It's universal. God says, thou shalt not murder. And we understand that murder is taking a life unjustly. Not to be confused with capital punishment because different words are used in the Hebrew for murder and, on the other hand, for killing the murderer. These are different terms. They have different definitions. They have different moral qualities. To put to death a murderer is not murder. And yet, what do we find? We find conservatives, so-called pseudo-conservatives, wanting to conserve what? The conservative tradition. But then, if the conservative tradition becomes diluted over time, becomes more pragmatic than principled at a certain point, and if it takes all reference to the authority of God to tell us what is right, what is good, what we ought to do, what we're commanded to do, if it takes all reference to God away, it's not really conserving conservatism. Because as Andrew T. Walker points out, this Sharon statement 
explicitly referenced God, much as our nation's founding documents explicitly mention God. And you could say, well, it's kind of general and how much of that was just deism? No, it's not the point. That's not the point. At least a deist is not an atheist. And if they believe that nature has a God who created and ordered the universe and us for a purpose, and if you can concede that there is such a thing as natural law, you're at least closer to agreeing with the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans that the truth about God is plainly visible, but men suppress the truth through unrighteousness because their deeds are evil. When that is the premise for conservatism, that men suppress the truth by their unrighteousness because their deeds are evil, they love darkness rather than light because they like to do what is bad, they like to do what is evil, and they want to legalize and normalize and rationalize and justify doing what is evil, only then can you make sense of conservatism, which is predicated on restraining evil. This is why a Republican form of government is always going to be superior at root to a democracy, because even though you're free to decide things democratically and count noses to decide what we're going to do next, you're free to do that. And to some extent, that can be good. It's only good if it's predicated on what God said we ought to do. So then what takes precedent is that God said we ought to do this thing. If God says you ought to take a poll and find out what 51% want to do and then honor that, then that command of God is what is upstream. That's what you prioritize over taking a poll and counting noses and seeing whether 51% or any other percentage is for something or against something. And yet when you take the command of God out of the equation, as Andrew T. Walker is pointing out, what you're losing is quite a lot. In fact, you're losing the whole basis for being a conservative in the first place. Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind has this throughout, even though plenty of the conservatives wouldn't have agreed about who God is. Some were very questioning as to whether God exists at all, whether we can know him at all. There's no getting around the fact that conservatism itself is deeply rooted in the belief that God ordered the universe, not just physically, but also morally. And that insofar as God has not changed, his order to the universe has not changed. And therefore we have things that are fixed. And even if we are not always fixed in our thinking, if we believe that there is such a thing as evil, that there are certain things that are not good to do, you ought not to do. That's the whole predicate for saying that the government is going to restrain evil. If you say there is no such thing as evil, or if you exchange bitter for sweet, well, then how can you as a Christian maintain your unity of mind? Is that not double-minded? Going back to Jephthah for a moment, what do you not find any mention of when he follows through with this oath? You don't find any mention of God having said it was a good thing for him to have done this thing. Now, maybe it was written on his heart that generally speaking, it's a good thing to keep your word. Now go from the vague, fuzzy notion to how we prioritize various of the commands of God, various of the callings and ordinations of God, when it seems as though maybe there's a tension or there's a conflict. He doesn't do that. And there is a folly to that, and there's a wickedness to that. And it's not just his folly, and it's not just his wickedness. It's also an indictment on the whole people of Israel 
the whole nation of Israel. They became so pluralistic, so multicultural, that even though they may have put away their idols temporarily for a season because God wasn't going to deliver them from the hand of their enemies, while they still had their idols in their back pocket, they had not given up on this live and let live or live and let die mindset, as is obvious. They had so conditioned themselves and talked themselves into, oh, you worship this God, I worship this other God, he worships still a third God. Yeah, we'll all do our own thing here. We'll each do what is right in our own eyes. What's curious is, at one point, the idea of God being king over Israel is what holds sway. That's the assertion. We don't need a king because God is our king. But when Judges says that there was no king in Israel, that's referring to the heart orientation of the people, their devotion, their affections. They did not regard God as their king. They didn't regard anybody as their king. And then here and there, when a human agent that is used by God, raised up by God to be a judge over Israel, deliver them from their oppressors, comes along, they say, well, let's, let's make you a king. Or in the case of Abimelech, he says, wouldn't it be better for you to be ruled over by one instead of so many? Help me kill all my brothers. Again, there's a pragmatism to that, but it's a very pragmatic argument. It would be better for you to just listen to me. Wouldn't that be simpler? It's a twisting of the idea that you would get rid of all these idols and worship one God. Only now who's your new God? It's Abimelech. In the case of Jephthah, fulfilling his oath. It's the twisting of the idea that you would be willing to do anything for God, except in this case, it's Jephthah being willing to do anything for his own pride, his own vanity. He's going to follow through with what he said he was going to do, and he's not going to follow through with what God said to do and to not do in this case with tragic consequences. Imagine with me, if you can, some young, upstanding, conservative Christian in the church, up and coming, out front, helping with various ministries, well thought of, well respected, well spoken, having an education that's good, well grounded in the classic works, knowing their Bible, participating in various ministries, maybe even helping lead many to the Lord. And now imagine they go astray. And either if they're a guy, they get some gal pregnant, or if they are a gal, they get some pregnancy from a guy and they're not married. And now here they are. They're a young person at the fore because we definitely want to affirm those who are young we want to prove as churches that we are for the youth. That's how you're going to get the youth in. It's be all about the youth. Prioritize youth ministry. Here's this young person. And now either they've gotten a girl pregnant if they're a guy or they've gotten pregnant if they're the girl and they're not married. And now they have their whole life ahead of them brought into a big question mark. And now... They're really grappling with how early in the pregnancy is it? And is it legal? Have we agreed together that maybe it's not really actually murder because the government doesn't say that it's murder as long as you have this done before eight weeks or before 12 weeks or before 16 weeks or before 20 weeks or whatever, right? Fill in the blank. 
So they're looking at the laws. They're looking at the rules. They're looking at some of the leading contenders for the Republican nomination for president. And they're afraid. And they say, I have my whole life ahead of me. And there are so many good things I could do for God if this doesn't ruin the trajectory. I was planning on going to this great college, this great university, because I have a good education now from kindergarten on up. All that's going to be ruined, all the good things I could do for God are going to be ruined if I don't stay the course. And in order to stay the course, this just needs to go away. This pregnancy, this stain on my reputation and my character is going to follow me for the rest of my days. And so the young man maybe says to whoever he got pregnant, I think you should get an abortion. Or the young lady says, I think I need to get an abortion. And it's not really murder, is it? And all these pragmatic type arguments come in. And if they come to the mind of the young person and also the adults in the equation, and if all alike say, well, you know, it's, it's, it is very difficult and who are we to judge? And, you know, the government is in this role to make these kinds of determinations and we'll just defer to whatever is legal pretty soon before you know it. You've got a young person either getting an abortion or encouraging the gal that got pregnant to get an abortion. And before you know it, the trajectory is maintained that now they can go off to college, get their four-year, six-year degree, come back home, hailed as a hero, maybe even go into the ministry, maybe even launch some major nonprofit, some major political movement, all these good things they can do for God and for what? So that they could maintain their plans, their purposes, they got an abortion. Because we said, well, who knows, right? Who knows at what age some clump of cells turns into a human being, into a person? Who knows, really? Who knows? R.C. Sproul might call this studied ambiguity, where we have to work very hard, but we're willing to put in the time and effort. We have to work very hard to avoid coming to a conclusion that would be concrete, universal, firm, You might call it double-mindedness if you're looking at the biblical text, but studied ambiguity is a good term for it too, where we have to work very hard to not take a position. Why? Because we don't want to be bound to that. We don't want to be constrained by that. We don't want to submit and obey. And so we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble because studied ambiguity leads to problems. And then when we come to those problems, if we're not snapped out of it by the consequences of our bad behavior, our bad attitude, what do we do? Well, we just carry on with the studied ambiguity. Drawing connections between causal links, causes and effects, between causal links and how we're suffering or how this or that situation, this or that scenario, this or that endeavor is not succeeding. If you can be studied in your ambiguities, double-minded in the upstream conclusions that would have led to making a decision that was firm and consistent. You can also, when you suffer consequences for being one who wavers, unstable in all your ways, you can also embrace studied ambiguity and saying, well, who knows, right? These things, they just happen sometimes. Jephthah considered his own oath, his own vow, his own plans, his own assertions to be of more weight than the command of God. Now, maybe he had forgotten about the command of God or it hadn't even entered into his mind. But then let me ask you, what if someone had come along and said, you know, I really 
don't think that was a good idea for you to promise that. What if, right? Here are all these hypothetical scenarios. What if somebody had warned him and said, hey, you know, (laughs) there are all kinds of hazards here. What if your wife is the first person who comes out of your front door? What if your daughter is the first one to come out your front door? What if a servant of yours comes out your front door? You're going to offer one of them as a sacrifice to God? Haven't you read what God says not to do? Don't you know that that would be murder? Suppose that had happened and he said, ah, no, 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 no. Don't undermine my authority. What would you say then? Well, the appropriate response would be, don't undermine God's authority. And yet that's what we lose. If we say we're going to have conservatism, whether it's inside the church or it's outside the church, we're going to have conservatism without any reference to the authority of God. All we're left with really is whoever has the most wealth, the most power, the most popularity, the biggest title, the biggest desk, the nicest corner office being the one who is the authority. And that's when we get into all kinds of trouble because we start to build up cults of personality around this or that candidate or commentator. And now they're our new God functionally for all equivalent purposes. They're our new God. And if they disappoint us, well, then we just switch again. Until you've found somebody better. Boy, howdy, you'd better not, right? You'd better not question anything they say. Don't criticize it. Don't disagree. Don't dissent. Don't say, well, have you considered this, this, then this? Because what will be said? Oh, you're undermining so-and-so, and we really need them. Help you. You really need God. What does it mean for Christians to fear Yahweh, to fear the Lord, fear God, keep his commandments? And that will, yes, mean that you respect those in positions of authority. You will respect and honor all to whom respect and honor are due. But when you start with the fear of the Lord, it puts all other fears into perspective. The fear of the Lord is supposed to be in proportion to how wise, powerful, holy God is, how good he is, how righteous are his commands and his precepts and his promises, how faithful he is. Your fear of God is in proportion to his being Lord of all creation. Once that becomes your rubric, once that becomes the measure, then your fear or honor or respect or reverence for anybody else below God, under God, is moderated in proportion to their authority, their wisdom, their power, their righteousness, their faithfulness, their obedience, their love, their truthfulness. And this is why we say we lose respect for somebody when they do the wrong thing, when they say an untrue thing, knowingly or unknowingly. We can lose respect. If they rightly handle the truth, we gain respect for them. And if they wrongly handle the truth, whether sloppily or ignorantly or intentionally speaking untruths, lying, manipulating, in all the above, We say that we lose respect for somebody. And of course, what we don't mean is now we have a blank check and we can just treat them any way we like. But what we do mean is it is appropriate for us to have respect for the person corresponding to how righteous they are, how powerful they are, how wise they are, how good they are, how honest they are. But none of that stays in a healthy proportion if we don't start with the fear of the Lord. Jephthah failed 
to factor in the fear of the Lord in his carrying out his rash vow, his hasty oath. Conservatism might make all kinds of promises and people might get up and they say, oh, vote for me and I'll do X, Y, and Z. I'll cure cancer and I'll kiss every baby and there'll be a chicken in every pot. I'll shake every hand. Maybe, maybe they'll do those things. But you know what's more sure, what's more certain and fixed and immutable and unchanging than whether they are able to keep those promises, whether they have an intention to keep those promises, whether they're just telling you what you want to hear, so you vote for them, and then they're going to do some other thing once they get into a position, and they'll say, oh, circumstances changed, the polling changed, we didn't get a majority in the House or the Senate, or one of these Supreme Court justices died, now we have to switch gears and deal with that, or a war broke out with this other power, and now we've got to focus on that. What's not all up in the air the way that it is with even the best of men, when we talk about God, what's not up in the air is whether God is going to continue on being good, wise, holy, faithful. And that's why you can't really conserve anything when you embrace studied ambiguity. When you're more afraid of what the results might be from counting noses than you are afraid of God, you're unstable in all your ways. You shouldn't expect to receive anything. You just shouldn't. It's not going to go well. Hmm. Sure, it might seem like it is going well for a time, for a while, and then it won't go well all of a sudden. And actually, even while it's going well, you'll be racked with all kinds of doubts and misgivings, consternation, stress, because you know at any moment it might go very poorly because it's not on a firm foundation. Jesus says at one point, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, not just thinking about them, not just talking about them, puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The man who hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. In both cases, the rains and the winds and the storm do beat against the house. In the one case of the wise man who builds his house on the rock, the house stands firm. In the case of the man who builds his house on sand, and I think you could compare very easily building your house on the sand to counting noses to figure out what's true and what's good on a daily basis? Or should it be hourly? Oh, let's take a vote about that too. No, no. You know, in the one case, if you build your house on the rock, it doesn't mean that there's no sand on the rock. In fact, odds are high, there's going to be sand that gets blown onto the rock, and that's fine. The exceptions do not invalidate the fact that you have a rule. You're building the house on the rock. And so if Jesus happens to put that rock on a sandy beach, fine, good, great. God made sand too. And yet God says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. God gives commands. He gives principles. He gives promises. Some of those promises are blessings for obedience. Some of those promises are curses and punishment for disobedience. So in conclusion, I think we should be not like Jephthah. Don't be that guy. Oh, look at me. Look at me. I'm sacrificing even my own daughter, my beloved daughter, because I keep my word. I keep my promises. Now, you should have repented of that one. You should care more about what God has said than what you said. Be willing to eat some crow. Be willing to admit if you were wrong. And if you're not willing to admit when you're wrong, then you're stiff-necked and stubborn. And you should expect it's going to go poorly for you. 
Maybe for a time, other people who are similarly stiff-necked are going to affirm you, pat you on the back, congratulate you. You guys are all going to work together. And you will just write out of the story anybody who would say, well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. But God said this. Quiet, you. That's enough. You're undermining us. We're not going to put up with that. We're not conserving anything. If we have removed God from the equation, if it's all pragmatism, it's all utilitarianism, it's all what's practical, what seems expedient, there's a way that seems right to a man. If it's all that, in the end, it leads to death. The death might be our death, and it won't be a heroic death. It'll be an ignominious one. It'll be a cautionary tale. We'll become a byword. I don't want that. On the other hand, can you just imagine if the story of Jephthah had gone very differently? If when he came home and his daughter ran out to greet him with so much joy, that's part of what's so tragic about this. She comes out singing and playing an instrument and celebrating the victory because the word apparently has reached her or she figures, well, of course my dad was going to win. She follows through too. She obeys, right? She submits to this thing and she shouldn't have actually, as a matter of fact. See also David, you know, turn the other cheek and submit to those in authority over you does not always mean you just passively acquiesce to their doing the bad thing, the evil thing that they ought not to do. In fact, you might be actually looking out for them. You might be doing them a great kindness to say, no, 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 don't do this thing. This thing you are doing is not good. See also David, when Saul threw the spear out a minute, wedged itself into the wall, as Wayne Grudem points out in Politics According to the Bible, David did not turn the other cheek. He didn't pull the spear out of the wall and pass it to King Saul and say, here, try again. He ran. He didn't avenge himself, but he ran and God avenged him. What if Jephthah would have said, you know what? I said a stupid thing. I shouldn't have said what I said. I shouldn't have promised what I promised. What am I supposed to do when I make a hasty vow? Because this is not going to work. I can't do this thing. It's an evil thing. Lo and behold, God says not to do this thing that I am now committed to unless I repent. Wouldn't he be honored? Wouldn't we remember him very fondly? In that case, of course we would. Instead, we read his story with sadness. And in fact, it says that in Israel, women dedicate, at the time of the writing of the book of Judges, they dedicate four days in the year to mourning the virginity of Jephthah's daughter. Why? Because she had never gotten married. She had plans, right? She had plans to get married, to be a wife, to be a mother, to live her life. Plans interrupted because Jephthah said he was going to do this thing. By golly, he's going to follow through with what he said he was going to do. Don't be like Jephthah. Don't do it. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.